This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on bacterial meningitis. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm clinical director at BMJ. The, the incidence of bacterial meningitis in Western countries is about 0.8 per 100,000 persons per year. Thankfully, it's not common, but it is associated with significant morbidity and mortality. Complications can range from hearing loss to seizures to cognitive, academic, and behavioral problems. To give us more details about this problem and what we can do about it, we have on the line Dr. Elizabeth Adderson, who works in the Infectious Disease Department of St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital in Memphis. And importantly, Elizabeth is author of our BMJ Best Practice topic on this condition. So Elizabeth, you're welcome. Let's start off by asking, what exactly is bacterial meningitis? Thank you. The meninges are the protected membranes that surround the brain and spinal cord, and meningitis is inflammation of these membranes. Um, meningitis can be caused by infections or non-infectious conditions, but infections are the most common. Uh, viruses, bacteria, and fungi can all cause meningitis. Most cases of meningitis are caused by a virus, and these are generally self-limited and require only symptomatic treatment. Bacterial meningitis, on the other hand, is a life-threatening infection that requires prompt diagnosis and specific treatment um, if you want to optimize patient outcomes. Community-acquired bacterial meningitis occurs through the hematogenous spread of bacteria, generally from a site of colonization or infection in the respiratory tract. The major pathogens in adults and children beyond the neonatal period are streptococcus pneumoniae and Neisseria meningitidis. Among children, uh, encapsulated haemophilus influenza type B continues to be a major player in countries that have not instituted routine infant immunization with conjugate haemophilus vaccines, and in other under-immunized populations. The most common causative agents in neonates and young infants are group B streptococcus agalactae and Escherichia coli. Many immunocompromised patients are at increased risk of bacterial meningitis, and in these patients, meningitis may be caused by a wider range of bacteria. Meningitis can also occur when bacteria are introduced into the central nervous system during neurosurgery or with trauma, and healthcare-associated meningitis may also complicate internal or external cerebral ventricular drains. There may also be direct extension to the central nervous system from a local infection that is in close proximity to the meninges, um, such as sinusitis, mastoiditis, uh, or osteomyelitis of the skull. Okay, thank you, Elizabeth. That, that's that's fantastic. Great introduction. And just one of the things you said about the respiratory tract. Um, uh, where in the respiratory tract do the bacteria usually reside? I wonder. The bacteria typically colonize the nasopharynx, um, and uh, they may, of course, um, cause local infections and infections spread hematogenously from infections such as otitis media, sinusitis, mastoiditis. Okay, thank you. Let's move on to diagnosis in the first instance. How do you make the diagnosis? The signs and symptoms of meningitis are referable to the systemic illness and to meningeal inflammation. So most patients with bacterial meningitis are unwell at presentation. The pace of the illness varies depending on both 
host and bacterial factors. Some patients may present with progressive symptoms over the course of one to two days, while others may have a very fulminant presentation over a few hours with sepsis and severe neurologic dysfunction. The classic triad of clinical features is fever, neck stiffness, and altered mental status, but this complete triad occurs in less than half of patients. Um, Headache is common, as are nausea and vomiting. Less common features include seizures, focal neurological abnormalities, and evidence of raised intracranial pressure. Petechial rashes or palpable purpura are particularly common in meningococcal meningitis. Meningeal inflammation typically manifests as a reluctance to flex the neck, as this applies traction to the inflamed tissues and causes pain. There are two classic tests for meningismus. Bradinsky's sign refers to spontaneous flexion of the hips in response to the passive flexion of the neck. Koenig's sign is the reluctance to allow full extension of the leg at the knee from a position in which the hip is flexed 90 degrees. While these signs are quite specific, they are actually not commonly positive um, in practice, so people should not rely on them. Signs of raised intracranial pressure are frequent in fulminant or advanced bacterial meningitis. Young infants may have a bulging fontanelle or diastasis of the cranial sutures. Headache, vomiting, altered mental status, and papilledema may indicate raised intracranial pressure in persons outside of uh, infancy. A Cushing triad consisting of systemic hypertension, bradycardia, and respiratory depression is a late sign. Routine laboratory evaluation is usually suggestive of an acute bacterial process with an elevated white blood count and shift towards immature neutrophil forms. The severity of abnormalities of serum chemistry, particularly hyponatremia, hypoglycemia, and lactic acidosis, usually parallels the chronicity and severity of the illness. Blood cultures are positive in 50 to 90% of patients, and these results may be particularly useful if, for some reason, lumbar puncture is contraindicated and it's not possible to obtain cerebrospinal fluid cultures. Every patient with suspected bacterial meningitis should have CSF obtained unless there's a contraindication to lumbar puncture. Um, And this might include a concern for raised intracranial pressure with potential cerebral herniation, uh, thrombocytopenia or coagulopathy, or underlying spinal pathology. In these cases, antimicrobial therapy shouldn't be delayed while waiting, obtaining spinal fluid, blood cultures should be obtained, and antibiotics should be started as soon as possible. CSF should be sent for cell count and differential, glucose and protein concentrations, gram stain and bacterial cultures, um, and any other tests as needed based on the patient's uh, demographic and clinical characteristics. Typical findings in bacterial meningitis include a CSF pleocytosis with a white blood count that is typically over 1,000, Um, and a neutrophil predominance. The CSF glucose concentration is typically low, usually less than 60% that of a concurrent serum glucose concentration. CSF protein is typically elevated, generally exceeding 100 milligrams per deciliter. CSF gram stain, if positive, may suggest a specific etiology, but a negative stain doesn't exclude a bacterial infection, as the sensitivity of the test may be as low as 50%. Positive CSF cultures confirm the diagnosis and allow antimicrobial susceptibility tests to be obtained. Cultures of other sites should be obtained in some cases, especially if there's evidence of a focal extracranial infection. Okay, thank you. And uh, I wonder, can you tell us about recent advances in diagnosis? 
Rapid diagnostic tests developed in the past two decades have proved to be very helpful in certain situations. Latex agglutination tests detect antigens of the common bacterial causes of meningitis, including E. coli, group B strep, strep pneumonia, haemophilus, um, and Neisseria meningitidis in the CSF specimens. These tests in general, however, have been superseded by more recent nucleic amplification tests, nucleic acid amplification tests, which have greater sensitivity and specificity. Um, individual assays and multiplex panels are available commercially and in reference laboratories, and they permit the presumptive identification of the etiology of an infection in, in as few as a few hours. Um, these tests, because they don't often change the initial management, are generally not indicated for straightforward cases, uh, but they're useful for patients whose CSF findings are suggestive of bacterial meningitis, but who have negative cultures, um, and for patients who have received antimicrobial therapy prior to having CSF specimens obtained, since these tests may be positive in the presence of non-viable organisms. Um, nucleic amplification tests have also proved useful in identifying unusual pathogens um, and conventional pathogens in geographic locations where it's difficult or impossible to use traditional microbiology techniques. Great. And I wonder, what would you say are the common pitfalls in diagnosis? I think the most common pitfall is failing to maintain a high index of suspicion for bacterial meningitis in patients who may not have a classic presentation. This includes young infants who may present with subtle and nonspecific signs such as lethargy and poor feeding when they have any serious infection. Immunocompromised patients may have poor inflammatory responses and in some instances, meningitis caused by uh, unusual or less virulent pathogens. So their signs and symptoms may also be more subtle than meningitis in otherwise healthy persons. And their illness sometimes takes a more insidious course. Um, prior administration of antimicrobials can rapidly reduce the yield of CSF gram stains uh, and cultures and blood cultures. Uh, but the CSF chemistry and cytology tends to be less rapidly effective, affected. A traumatic lumbar puncture can result in contamination of CSF specimens with blood, which alters the CSF cell count um, and protein determinations. Uh, there are some approaches to correcting these. Um, a common one, for example, is subtracting one white blood cell for every 500 to 1,000 red blood cells and one milligram per deciliter of protein for every 1,000 red blood cells. Uh, it's important to remember, though, that these are only helpful if the CSF isn't grossly hemorrhagic and they can only be rough approximates, approximations of the actual values. So it's generally advisable to treat presumptively for bacterial meningitis pending the results of the CSF culture and other more definitive diagnostic tests. Okay, thank you. And you mentioned young infants. What do you think is the kind of the, the particular danger age for, for, for missing it? Is it? Is it children under the age of six months or...? Uh, children um, are, the increased susceptibility to meningitis um, extends um, throughout the first six to nine months of age. But the, the, I believe the danger zone in, uh, in diagnosis is, is quite young infants, um, particularly those under a month of age, but, but also up to three months of age. Um, these are the children where it's difficult to assess them neurologically. Um, they have poor uh, muscle strength, so they do not typically exhibit things like nuchal rigidity, 
um, signs that we rely upon in older populations. And you mentioned that prior administration of antibiotics can render the CSF result negative. Does that include just giving oral antibiotics, I wonder? Yes. So although not formally studied, um, you would anticipate that the the greater the duration um, and the the greater um, blood concentration of antimicrobials, um, the greater impact that that is going to have on CSF parameters. Um, so uh, receiving uh, one or two doses of oral um, antimicrobials uh, clearly has some impact. And uh, some people have suggested it may reduce the yield of uh, positive gram stains and cultures by up to 60%. Um, the patient who receives um, uh, parental antimicrobials, um, it probably has a much greater impact and you may not be able to rely on your gram stain and culture results in that situation. Okay, thank you. And just one last question about diagnosis. Should you always measure the CSF pressure when doing a lumbar puncture? I think that is important, um, particularly in two settings. The first um, is if you are concerned about raised intracranial pressure, um, a formal measurement of that may be helpful. It may tell you if your patient requires more intensive monitoring, including things like monitoring um, intracranial pressure. Um, the second situation, I, I think, is in uh, immunocompromised patients, um, not particularly um, because uh, it, they have an, a, a, an unusually high incidence of raised intracranial pressure, but there are some opportunistic pathogens, um, the major one being cryptococcus, where um, raised intracranial pressure may be uh, quite common um, and, it, and uh, identifying it may have major um, ramifications for um, future studies and management. Okay. Thank you. Let's, let's move on to, 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 to that very thing, management. Can you tell us what is the mainstay? Of management of bacterial meningitis? Antimicrobial therapy should be started as soon as possible if CSF studies suggest bacterial meningitis. So initial therapy is directed at the most likely bacteria based on the patient's demographic and clinical characteristic, also taking into account local antimicrobial susceptibilities. Um, so the recommended antimicrobial regimens include drugs that are bactericidal, um, and that penetrate the blood-brain barrier well, at least in the presence of inflamed meninges. Um, because most antimicrobials have limited CSF penetration, it's necessary to administer drugs intravenously and sometimes to use doses higher than those used to treat other infections. Um, definitive antimicrobial therapy and the duration of therapy should be based on culture results and the antimicrobial susceptibilities of the causative bacteria. Okay. Thank you. Um, tell us about recent advances in management, if, if there have been uh, any such recent advances. Well, while probably no longer considered a recent advance, the use of dexamethasone to reduce intracranial inflammation um, does continue to generate discussion. Um, intravenous glucocorticoids, when administered prior to or at the time of initiation of antimicrobials, have been shown in some studies to reduce neurologic complications and mortality 
in patients with meningitis caused by strep pneumonia and haemophilus influenza. Um, that's presumably by reducing harmful inflammatory response to, to bacteria. The data supporting the use of glucocorticoids are inconsistent, however, and there are some potential disadvantages to their use, um, including potentially reducing the ability of antimicrobials to penetrate the blood-brain barrier, limiting clinicians' ability to evaluate responses to therapy, uh, and an increased risk of gastrointestinal bleeding and secondary fever. Most practitioners, I think, would administer dexamethasone if a patient's clinical illness and diagnostic tests were suggestive of community-acquired bacterial meningitis. Um, ideally, adjunctive dexamethasone should be given prior to or concurrently with the first dose of antibiotics. It's, it's unlikely to be helpful um, after that. Um, if an alternative etiology is identified, dexamethasone should be promptly discontinued. And, and importantly, dexamethasone is not indicated in meningitis caused by pathogens other than pneumococcus and haemophilus um, in meningitis related to neurosurgery or trauma in young infants or in immunocompromised patients. Okay, thank you. And, and still on management, what are the common pitfalls in management? Excellent supportive care is really critical to ensure good outcomes. Um, so one needs to pay careful attention to control of intracranial pressure and fluid balance to maintain both systemic and cerebral blood pressure. Uh, inappropriate secretion of antidiuretic hormone occurs in up to 60% of patients. So excessive fluid administration and hypotonic fluids should generally be avoided. Um, other metabolic abnormalities, particularly lacto lactic acidosis and hypoglycemia, are common, particularly in young children and patients with medical comorbidities. Um, seizure control is very important. Repeat lumbar puncture is indicated to document the sterility of the CSF in all neonates. Um, if there's no clinical improvement after 48 hours of appropriate antimicrobial use in older patients, and if the infection is caused by a resistant microorganism or unusual pathogen. Repeat lumbar puncture may also be indicated in patients with persistent or recurrent fever. Um, and neuroimaging may be needed to assess for local complications, such as subdural effusion or empyema, brain abscesses, hydrocephalus, and intracranial intravascular thrombosis um, or infarction. It's also important to remember that Neisseria meningitis and homophilus are communicable, um, so patient droplet precautions should be continued for persons with bacterial meningitis caused by these organisms for 24 hours after the institution of effective therapy. Um, and chemoprophylaxis would be indicated for some close contacts of patients. Okay, thank you. And, and the age-old question, how would you define a close contact? Is that family members only or...? Um, it, the, there are formal definition. Um, it is uh, it would be family members and and people who spit, have face to face contact um, essentially for more than an hour or so. So in some cases that may include persons um, working with patients in the emergency room um, or um, or other caregivers than household members. Okay, thank you. And and what. What antibiotics do you usually give to those close contacts? Um, it, uh, the, the most common um, antimicrobial that's prescribed is rifampin. Um, that, uh, um, other options in patients who um, cannot receive rifampin, for example, 
um, pregnant women, um, persons with um, hepatic dysfunction um, include ceftriaxone, um, and there, there are a few other options. Tell us about the prognosis of bacterial meningitis. The mortality of bacterial meningitis ranges from 5 to 25%, depending on patient's characteristics and the etiology of the infection. Uh, neurologic complications can occur at any time during the course of bacterial meningitis and are the most common persistent sequela, affecting up to 50% of surviving patients. Sensory neural hearing loss is most prevalent, affecting approximately 10% of patients. Um, other sequela, as you mentioned, include um, intellectual disabilities and motor and seizure disorders. All patients with bacterial meningitis should have a hearing test prior to hospital discharge as their hearing loss uh, may not be easy to appreciate initially, and it's important to be referred um, for um, hearing e evaluation um, and remediation if necessary. Some neurologic complications can uh, improve over time, so it's also important that other obvious impairments um, be formally evaluated and patients referred for appropriate therapy in order to optimize neurologic outcomes. Okay, thank you. And, 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 and lastly, tell us about prevention. Of bacterial meningitis? Very important um, to remember that safe and effective vaccines are available to prevent invasive infection caused by streptomonia, Haemophilus influenza type B, and Neisseria meningitidis. Um, these have indications for universal use in children, adolescents, and young adults, um, and in persons at risk of invasive infection caused by these bacteria, as well as the control of outbreaks. Okay, thank you very much, Elizabeth. And thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful and we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this and other relevant diseases. Thank you once again.